And so now, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. We are back to our systematic study. This is what we do here. Nothing too fancy. We like to keep it simple. We worship God and read the Bible. It's pretty, not, not a whole lot of pizzazz in that. Uh, but, but we want to get into it in a profound way and pick it apart in a profound way so we don't rush this. So we're doing the temptation narratives again. Uh, and I'm reading from the TNIV version, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. This is like our fourth pass at the temptation narratives, I think. I did two, as I recall, before the Beautiful Life series, and now this is my second one. And I think we're going to have another one, actually. But see, the Word of God's like that. It's like you can—there's layers and layers and layers and layers. It, it's just—and so we just want to, like, keep on going at it, keep on going at it. And uh, not, not in a big hurry, no. Can I get spiritual here? Okay, so here we go. Ready? Here's what it says. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and he, was, uh, felt, he left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. See, every time I read this passage, I get something new out of it, and I, I, I can't preach on what I just saw here. I, 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 next week, I'm going to preach on what I just saw here. Yes, I'm not even going to tell you what I just saw, so you'll come back next week. It's just really good, though. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was understandably hungry. <laughs> the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus said, it is written, people don't live by bread alone. The devil uh, led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I'll give it, I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. But Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil, not quite done yet, led him to Jerusalem and, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is, now the devil's going to quote the Bible. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Which, by the way, proves that the devil does know the Bible. Uh, so you've got to be careful about how people quote the Bible, all right? They, uh, they will lift you up in their hands, these angels will, and uh, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus came back at him with the scripture and said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil finally gave up. When he finished all this tempting, he left him until an, a more opportune time. Pray with me one more time for a moment. Father, let this word be life and wisdom to us, that we might know you, walk in your ways, and be transformed by your word, and be resisting temptation, and saying yes to you, and no to the enemy, and growing in, in, in Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Okay, so we're, I'm going to entitle this message, by the way, Competing Faiths. I forgot to tell you that, for reasons that will become clear here in a moment. Last week, we used this passage as an opportunity to talk about the reality of the warfare that engulfs us right here and right now, every moment. We're in the middle of a warfare. It's not a physical warfare, although sometimes it's manifested as a physical warfare, but it's always a spiritual warfare. There are right now spiritual bombs and spiritual bullets flying all over the place. People are right this moment taking hits, which is one of the reasons why we need to have such a prayer covering every time we come together. Um, uh, there is a roaring, prowling, deceptive lion out there seeking whom he may devour. We saw last week. There's a difference between demonic warfare and satanic warfare. Demonic warfare is where you're dealing with low-level, low-intelligence grunts of the demonic world. And Jesus, 
and we uh, confront them with a, spirit, with a power encounter. That's where you just cast them out of people and cast them off of people. But that's different than when you're dealing with Satan, as we saw last week. Satan, it's not so much a power encounter as it is a wisdom encounter. Satan is much more crafty and subtle and intelligent than the demonic forces. And so here the call is to be wise and to be awake and to know his schemes and his plans and to not fall into traps. Now I want to, taking the same passage, look at it from yet another angle. One that is, I think, very, very important. To get at this, I want to raise a couple of interesting questions little puzzling things. And we've said before that one of the best ways to really crack open the word and get into it is to ask questions. So here's a question. It says that Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And yet we only read about three temptations here. What was going on the rest of the time? How long do these temptations take? Here's another question. It says that Jesus, uh, that the devil led Jesus up to the highest point of the temple. Uh, the highest, a high place where he could see all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. Where might that place have been? I'm thinking Mount Everest is probably the highest point I know of. I, someone told me last service there's actually one mountain higher than Mount Everest. Whatever that mountain was, that's where he was. He was at a high place so he could see in an instant all the kingdom of the world. But if you were on the top of Mount Everest or whatever that other mountain is, could you see all the kingdoms of the world in an instant? I don't think so because you're too high up. In fact, you, they'd be so far down there you couldn't see them. In fact, even if you're at the highest point on the planet, you can only see a fraction of the globe because, here's a newsflash, the world is round. <laughs> so how can you literally see all the kingdoms of the world in an instant uh, by virtue of being in a high place? Those kind of questions combined with a number of other curious features about this passage, have led a lot of scholars to conclude, I think rightly, that these temptations were not really about physical events happening outside of Jesus as they were mental events happening inside of Jesus. The enemy was inspiring a vision in Jesus' mind where he saw all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. And the enemy was inspiring a vision in his mind where he saw himself on top of the temple uh, as the center place of, of, of Judaism and therefore in front of uh, all Jewish believers. And he was tempted to put his, his uh, 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 messiahship on display in an obvious way. Um, and, and so it seems that these temptations were not really about things happening external to Jesus as they were things happening inside of Jesus. Now, whether you agree with me on that or not, I always like to give people the opportunity to be wrong. So you don't have to agree with me. But, but, but uh, whether you agree with me or not, there's this question that follows from that, and, and, and it's this. Why would the devil, why did the devil go through the trouble of showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world with all of their glory and all of their splendor? And why did the devil take the, the, the trouble to show Jesus the perspective from the pinnacle of the temple? Why not just verbally tell Jesus that if you'll worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world? And, and, and why not throw yourself down uh, from the height of the temple uh, in order to show everybody that you're the Messiah? Why not just verbally tell him? Why bother to show him? And the answer is that, and I think we can all confirm this with our own experience, the answer is this. Mere information doesn't really pull us, doesn't really tempt us, doesn't really motivate us. Rather, it's what we see and what we experience primarily in our mind that pulls us, 
that functions as a temptation for us or that motivates us to, to godly activity. It's the concrete movies that we run in our mind, the futures that we envision that pull us in certain directions. Mere information just doesn't do it. If you access a time when you've recently been tempted and go inside of your head and ask the question, what was going on in my head while I was being tempted, I think you'll prove for yourself this point. To illustrate, I've been recently trying to cut down a little bit on the amount of, of chips I eat uh, while watching late night TV. Uh, I am aware and have been aware for some time that it is not good for your waistline to be consuming billions of calories right before you go to bed. I'm told that's the worst time uh, to be packing it in. Uh, the trouble is it's so fun to eat chips uh, while you're watching TV at night. And uh, the trouble is, is that when you start to get in your late 40s, you start to show it. And so I'm aware that, that uh, this isn't good and I want to be cutting down on that. Uh, and I've been doing pretty good on that. Instead, I just want to, I'll eat broccoli or something. Uh, some vegetables which don't taste nearly as good so you don't eat nearly as much and they're a lot healthier for you and whatnot. But sometimes I'm tempted. And when I'm tempted, if I go inside my head and ask what is going on when I'm tempted, here's what's going on. I don't get information in my head that tells me that, that, that you know, I could be eating chips right now. That wouldn't tempt me. Hey, you could eat chips right now and they taste really good. That doesn't do anything for me. When I'm sitting there watching whatever show I'm watching, uh, I will, in my, and it happens faster than we're usually aware of because we do this automatically. But what I, I see something. I, I see a little movie. I see the bag of chips. <laughs> Yummy. They are the, these uh, kettle salty Parmesan garlic chips. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying. Those things, they explode in your mouth. You, you bite into them, it's like this explosion, a sensory overload. I'm getting hungry right now just thinking about them. And I can taste them, I can smell them, I can crunch them. In my mind, I'm, I've entered into that. And that pulls me. It's like, whoa, that would taste so good. I'm almost pre-tasting them in my mind. I'm not even aware of that, you know. I'm, I'm watching TV, but I'm starting to go, mm, mm, it would really be nice, you know. So, I, you know, I'm tempted. That's the nature of temptation. There's a movie that we see in our head. Uh, another illustration, a lady I spoke with a little while ago, um, had, uh, she made a pledge um, that she was going to support a child in Haiti. Uh, for $75 a, a, a year, you can, a kid can go to school, otherwise wouldn't be able to go to school. And, and we have this Haitian educational project here at the church. And so uh, she made a pledge that she was going to give $75 to this uh, educational fund and support a child. Uh, a few days after she did this, and she's on a tight budget like a lot of us are. She doesn't have a lot of extra $75 hanging around, but she's out shopping for somebody else. But she sees, as she put it, a sweater to die for. Now, I don't think there's any sweater we're dying for, but this sweater, it, it, it was her. It was her, but better than her. And, and it cost $75. This is a classic uh, satanic temptation. Uh, and and as, as, as she's looking at this, I guarantee you she's not just having a piece of information going through the, the, her brain saying, you could buy that, uh, you could buy that uh, sweater if only you didn't pledge that $75. Uh, in fact, you could buy that sweater even though you pledged it. Just don't follow through on the pledge. She's not just getting information. She is seeing herself in that sweater. 
She's, and she looks good in that sweater. And she's walking with that sweater and she's hearing in her mind in a flash second, hearing people say, oh, Mary, we'll call her Mary. Mary, you look so good in that sweater. You look hot in that sweater. Oh, I'm so glad you got that sweater. That sweater is you, but better than you. And see, it's the attractiveness of that movie running in an instant in her brain that is pulling her in this direction. That's the nature of temptation. Now, because it's temptation, that's not the only thing you're, you're seeing. You're seeing a movie that's pulling you in a certain direction. But if that's all you saw, you wouldn't be tempted. You'd just do it. If I, if I wasn't trying to you know, cut down on my chips, there'd be no problem. I would just see the movie and go get the chips and pick out. I would have no problem whatsoever. But I'm conflicted about this, which tells me that there's something else going on in my brain. There's another movie that I'm seeing in my brain that is not in congruity with this temptation movie. In, in this movie, I, I'm, uh, I'm abstaining from this. In fact, our brains, if we could get a little peek into each other's brains, we'd see that we're all far more strange than we realize. We have a lot of stuff, weird stuff that goes on in there. We're just used to our own stuff, so we don't know how weird it is. But here's what I see. If I really examine, become a detective of my own, my own mind, and look at what's going on in my brain, yes, I see this bag of chips, yummy, 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 but I also am seeing, this is weird, but I'm seeing a belly. I'm seeing my dad's belly. Uh, my dad had, uh, you know, uh, was a little bit overweight, and all of it was in his belly. It just protruded out. And God bless people who have bellies like that. There's no problem with that. My wife wishes I had a little more of a belly like that. But I don't want a belly like that. As a kid, I used to look at that and think, I never want to have a belly like that. And now that I'm 49, I'm starting to have a belly like that. Uh, yeah, and, and it's because I'm eating chips, just like my dad did. So by seeing this, it, makes, it, it gives me a, a motivation not to eat the chips. I'm also seeing, very briefly, and they kind of go back and forth here, a movie of how good it feels to be disciplined. I feel good that, that, that I can say no to chips. Chips are not my Lord. I'm Lord of the chips, not <laughs> chips Lord of me. And, and, and so I, I, I see myself eating broccoli, and I feel good about myself because I took authority over the chips. All right. I rebuke those chips in Jesus' name. <laughs> so here's what's going on. I got competing movies. There is, on the one hand, the movie of the Greg eating yummy chips, and it pulls on me. But there's also the movie of Greg, the self-disciplined broccoli eater. And that also pulls on me, and I'm conflicted. I am, what the Bible says, double-minded. Which one's going to win? In the case of Mary, Mary is running a movie of Mary wearing the hot sweater. And I don't mean temperature hot. She's wearing a hot sweater. She looks hot. But she's also running a movie of Mary, uh, Mary sending the Haitian child to school. And that also pulls her. And the question is, which of these movies are going to grab her and, and pull her in, in which direction? The first principle I want us to see is we're trying to become wise in, in, in resisting temptation. The first principle is to realize that temptation is rooted in competing internal movies that uh, occur in our brain at a fraction of a section. A second. Temptation is rooted in competing internal movies in our brain, which leads to a second principle, and really it's just the flip side of the coin of the first principle, and it's this. Temptation is all about competing faiths. What are you going to have faith for? In fact, your internal movie is your faith. You're deciding what faith you're going to adopt and deciding what kind of movie you're going to adopt, and that will determine what course of action you adopt. Uh, we've, we covered this uh, several months ago, so this will be a review for some people here, uh, but it's a very important review. 
Here's, what the Bible, here's how the Bible defines faith. The only place where the Bible lays out exactly what faith is, it says this in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for or anticipated, and it's the evidence of things not seen. The word for substance is hypostasis in Greek, and it means substantial reality. And the word for evidence is the word elegkos, which could be better translated conviction. It's a felt conviction. And so we could apply this passage this way in terms of my analogy of the movies. Faith is biblically defined as the mental movie that you run. What you see as a substantial reality. It's not just information. It's what you see as a substantial reality in your brain. Faith is the mental movie you run, the hypostasis that produces the felt conviction, elegkos, that motivates you to move towards making the movie a reality. You're seeing something which is creating a feeling something which, creates, which motivates you to do something. We're wired to operate like that. That's why Jesus always said, according to your faith, be it unto you. According to the movies that you run in your head, be it unto you. You see it, you want it, you do it. We're wired that way. That is your faith. So what's going on as I'm in my chip dilemma is really a matter of competing faiths. What am I going to believe about Greg Boyd? Uh, will I have faith that Greg will, is the kind of person who will be a chubby late night chip eater? Is that my faith? I, I, am I having faith for that? Am I moving towards that? Or am I having faith that Greg will be a disciplined late night broccoli eater? What am I believing is true about me? I'm defining who I am by the kind of faith I have, which is the kind of movies that I'm running. In, in, in the case of Mary, will Mary have faith that she'll be a promise-breaking, self-indulgent consumer? Or will Mary have faith that she'll be a self-sacrificial child supporter? You see, and it's about what kind of movies you're running in your head. It's about what kind, of, what kind of faith you're having for yourself. And according to your faith, be done to you. Whatever you're seeing is going to create a certain kind of feeling. Whatever hypostasis you have creates an allegkos, which creates uh, an activity. Now, I can bring these two things together, the, 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 uh, the movies and the faith and the hypostasis and the allegkos, by using another illustration to take it a little bit deeper. And I'm going to tell you that this the illustration is actually very common. But it's rarely talked about in church because this illustration uh, deals with sexuality. And for some reason, Christians, when we get together, we're a whole lot more prudish than we really are when we're by ourselves. Uh, there's sort of a, and I want to kind of bash that rule right now if I could, because we're sexual beings more or less. And so we need to talk about these things that are real. Uh, I'm aware that there may be non-adults in the crowd, so I will try to be wise and use coded language so that all the adults will know what I'm talking about, but hopefully none of the kids will. You may have some questions to answer on the way home, and God give you wisdom as you do that. Okay, so here's how it goes. And sometimes talking about sex makes people nervous, but just chill. It's going to be okay. You know, we're just human beings. I'm talking to a guy, let's say his name is John, several years ago. Um, and he is in a marriage that is starting to fall apart. It's been getting increasingly dead over the years. Uh, I've been married 12, 13 years, and his marriage is all but on the rocks right now. Among the problems in this marriage is this problem. In fact, it turns out to be one of the fundamental problems. 
Uh, he and his wife very rarely have sexual relationships with one another. They very rarely get sexually intimate with one another. In fact, it gets less and less every year. And the few times they did it in the, in the most recent year, it was more, more out of a sense of duty or obligation, awkward embarrassments, like this is what we're supposed to do. But none of them really enjoy it. They never really, you know, it's not, it's not fulfilling. They just sort of do it. Uh, but uh, it, it's just not working in, in, in the sexual department. One of the reasons, in fact, maybe the main reason why it's not working in that department is that there's a pattern in John's life that he's had since he was an adolescent. And it has to do with the kind of faith he has, which is about the kind of movies he's running in his head. Uh, the pattern is this. John, being a 40-year-old normal male, gets aroused on occasion. He just gets frisky now and then. And that's a good thing. That's a God thing because that's there to motivate him to move towards his wife so that they'll share sexual intimacy. That's a good thing. But John has learned what every person who's been married for more than three days has learned, and that is that sex in marriage, as opposed to sex as it's portrayed in Hollywood, sex in marriage takes a certain amount of work. There's a little bit of work involved. If you're going to hook up with your wife tonight, here's some things that need to happen. Number one, it means you're going to have to delay gratification. Very rarely does it happen in the real world that you're feeling frisky and boom, right now you have an opportunity. No, there's always all sorts of other things that are getting in the way and, and you might have to delay a couple hours, you might have to delay a couple days, you know. Uh, and so it means you've got to learn how to deal with, with, with sexual frustration. That's one of the things that's going to happen if you're going to have sexual intimacy with your wife. Number two, sex in marriage as opposed to sex in Hollywood can never be abstracted out of the total relationship. It's a package deal, folks. And so John knows that if, 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 if intimacy is going to occur, there's some things he's going to have to take care of in this relationship. He's going to have to, among other things, uh, get forgiveness for a few of the things he said over the last couple months. And, and, and if, if, if he's going to hook up with his wife, he's going to have to uh, show a little bit more interest in, in her life and, and participate, participate a little bit more uh, with the kids and help out a little bit more on the house and maybe offer to vacuum once in a while or do the dishes once in a while and fix that stupid doorknob that's been broken for seven months. And he's going to have to work on this relationship. You can't just... As much as some of us men try, you can't just isolate sex and make it a separate thing from the total relationship. So he knows he's going to have to do the work of building a healthy relationship. Uh, and on top of that, uh, even if he does all those things, he's a good boy for a whole day. <laughs> Dealing with sexual frustration and, and, and uh, compulsively vacuuming uh, the, the, the carpet, making sure his wife's watching. <laughs> Whatever. You see, it still might not go down. <laughs> uh, you know, finally, the kids get put into bed and it's, it's time. And you're trying to set the mood and then, doesn't it always happen? Uh, the mother-in-law calls and there's a catastrophe going on somewhere. Or the child all of a sudden starts coughing or throws up. And, you know, it's like, all that worked for nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm ruined. This is not fair. The problem of evil. You know, a million things can go wrong. You know, you're just getting ready, and all of a sudden there's a misunderstanding. It's like, no, 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 I, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean it that way. And boom, now you're in another fight, and it's not going to happen. And, and there's a whole lot of things that can go wrong. You know what I'm talking about. And even, even if everything went right all day long, you put it off, and, and now, you, you know, it's start, the kids aren't staying asleep, and there are no phone calls, there's still a certain amount of work involved. Uh, there's some truth to the stereotype that men, generally speaking, are wired more like helicopters, and women, generally speaking, are wired a little bit more like 747s. They need a little longer runway strip to take off. 
All right, now you know what, come on, somebody say, man, I'm feeling lonely up here. Don't you go getting prudish on me. You know, from a guy's perspective, this whole thing could be accomplished in about three minutes, and, and it's not going to go like that. So there's a certain amount of patience and self-sacrifice and other, setting the mood and all the other, you know, things that need to be taking place. Now, John, so there's a part of John that is thinking it'd be a whole lot easier. And here's the pattern. A whole lot easier to do something he's been doing since he was an adolescent. He could just gratify himself. He could, as they sometimes say, fly solo. And this would take a total of three to five minutes, and there's no work involved, and it's a sure thing. On top of that, the movies that he's running in his head while this is going on, reality can't really compete with that. And so the pattern is that John, more often than not, goes in that direction. And the result is that that natural energy that he's to have to drive him towards his wife that will give him one more reason to help out around the house and one more reason to, to uh, you know, work through the, the issues that they're having, that energy that's there to drive the two together is now being dissipated. And so he's got very little drive for his wife. That in turn does something to his wife. She's not feeling very sexually attractive these days which makes her start to you know, go into self-loathing. She's got her own coping mechanisms, whether it's, it's, it's shopping or it could be the same thing that John does. And the two are now falling apart. There's more distance. They start going into a negative loop and they're, they're growing away from each other. All of this contributes to a problematic marriage. What's going on here is that John is being tempted. What's going on here is that he's giving into this temptation more often than not. A pattern that he's been doing and it's been reinforced with pleasure since he was in adolescence. But what's going on here is that the marriage is being destroyed. What's going on here is that John is being prevented from maturing as he ought to mature as a follower of Jesus. And what's going on here is that the prowling lion is having a field day with, 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 with John and, and uh, with, with his whole marriage keeping this marriage from being the God-glorifying marriage that, that it could be. What's going on, if we could get inside of John he John's head, is that there's a competition of movies going on. Uh, there is, on the one hand, the movie of John, the grown-up, godly, loving husband. John's got that movie, which is why he doesn't feel totally okay with his life right now. If he didn't have any alternative movie, he'd be totally at peace doing what he's doing. But he is convicted, which tells me that there's another movie going on. He does see a movie of himself, a faith for himself, being a godly, loving husband that does the right thing. But there's also this movie of John, the self-gratifying legend in his own mind. And the way he uh, runs that movie where he gets to be the, the star of the show and it's, it's attractive and it's fun and it's quick, the way he runs that movie as opposed to the way he runs the movie of him being a godly man, which is always boring and dull, involves a lot of work, uh, the way he runs these movies almost ensures that more often than not, he's going to keep on doing what he's been doing since he was an adolescent. These competing movies are really competing faiths. Faith about what kind of, John is having faith about what kind of man he's going to be. Will John be a grown-up, self-sacrificing follower of Jesus? There is that movie in his head. Or will he have faith that, he's, that he'll keep the maturity of an adolescent who can't delay gratification even for a couple of hours? And that faith leads into a faith about what's going to happen that day. Because faith is always about things you anticipate, things you hope for. Will John have faith that tonight he's going to have intimate relationships with his wife? Or will John have faith that he's going to keep on doing what he's been doing since he was an adolescent? And chances are he's not going to get together with his wife. And that faith is, is really a faith about the whole marriage. What kind of faith is John going to have for the whole marriage? And remember, according to your faith, be it unto you. 
What kind of faith is he going to have? What kind of motivation is he going to have? What kind of behavior is he going to have? What kind of marriage is he going to have? Is he going to have faith that his marriage is going to be a good, vibrant marriage with healthy sexual activity? Or is he going to have faith that this marriage is going to keep on being mediocre and mostly sexless marriage? In fact, the way they're going, maybe eventually no marriage at all. It's about what kind of faith you're going to have, which is about what kind of movies you're going to run and how are you going to run them. So how do we run the right movies in ways that will bring about the right behavior? How do we say no to temptation? Let me give two basic teachings here, which we've had. They're more reminders than anything, but I want to use them and address them to this specific issue. And the prayer here is that God will use these to get us in touch with what we're doing in our head that will give us wisdom to take authority over what we're doing in our head that will drive us in the right direction. So two reminders. Reminder number one, remember the prowling lion. Never forget the prowling lion. As we saw last week, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us to be alert and be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. John needs to stay awake and be aware of what's going on. John needs to see the bigger picture, needs to run movies about the bigger picture. John needs to realize that his fantasies are not just about him. And it's not just a matter of, of some kind of innocuous relieving of sexual tension. It's bigger than that. It's more important than that. John needs to remember that there's a war going on around him. There's a war going on uh, with him. And there's a war going on in him. John needs to remember that there's a lion out there who's got a scheme, who's got a plan. Uh, and he's very smart. John needs to realize that he's, he's being set up. John needs to realize that there's a cosmic force out there that has a scheme to keep him from maturing in the way that God wants him to mature. Uh, there's a scheme out there to keep him acting, at least at times, like an adolescent. There's a scheme out there to keep his marriage from being a fulfilling, God-glorifying marriage. There's a scheme out there which, if possible, will eventually result in this couple getting a divorce. John needs to wake up to what's going on, the bigger picture, the battles that are, be are being fought. John needs to realize that when he's giving in to this temptation that he is being played. He is being, becoming a pawn, a mindless pawn, a little puppet of this cosmic power. He's being used as a strategy of the enemy. And what John needs to do is to take that truth and make it part of the movies he's running. All transformation involves getting our movies, our thoughts, to line up with what is true. The enemy to operate in our minds, always has to use deception, some falsehood. So we need to bring our movies into congruity with what is true. And so what I did in talking with John to help bring about more truth in his video department was this. I said, John, when, you're, when you realize that you're starting to go down your adolescent path, to bring that movie a little bit more into truth, why don't you do this? I want you to impose a soundtrack. You've got authority over your brain. You can make it do whatever you want. You, re you really can. Uh, uh, impose a soundtrack. And the soundtrack involves, you hear the devil snickering at you. And then you hear the devil laughing hysterically at you. Uh, because what's true is that that's exactly what's going on. You're just getting your thoughts to line up with what is true. He's laughing at you. 
He's laughing at the fact that he's been able to keep this 40-year-old guy acting like an adolescent in the, in the right situation. He's laughing at the fact that you're such an easy pawn. He's laughing at the fact that he, he, it, it hasn't taken much at all for him to be about destroying your marriage. He's laughing at the fact that this is having negative implications in your spiritual walk uh, more than you could ever dream. He's laughing at you. And if you can hear that laughter... I guarantee you, if you change the hypostasis, you change the elegkos. All of a sudden, you're not going to be feeling so frisky about that. Hearing la someone laughing at you kind of takes the edge off the turn-on, if you know what I'm talking about. In fact, as you hear the enemy laughing at you, it ought to make you mad. It's going to make you mad. You're being played. And now, as you realize that, Change your movie, and I want you to see a movie bright, full of color, full of sound, and it's a movie about who you really are as opposed to this stupid lie that you're believing here. You, you see a movie that you're a king's kid, which means you're not anyone's pawn. You're not to be played by anyone. You're no one's fool. You're a child of God. You're filled with the Spirit. You've got the power and the love and the character of Jesus Christ running through you, and you're a 40-year-old man, and you're above this adolescent stuff. You can outgrow this adolescent stuff. You can be a follower of Jesus Christ and go to the, to the cross. Beyond just sexual frustration, you, you've, you've got the character to go to the cross on behalf of your wife if need be. That's who you really are. And you hear the negative of the enemy laughing at you and see the positive of, of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ and move towards that. That's how it is for all of our movies, for all of our temptations, for all of the competing faiths in our brain. Get your movies to line up with truth and see the bad as what it really is, bad, and the good as what it really is, good. And that Change of hypostasis, the substantial reality in your brain, changes the elegkos, the, the conviction of your heart, which changes the behavior, and now you're going in a different track. The enemy, I guarantee you, will always distort the picture to make the bad look like it's good and the good looks like it's bad. And the way to defeat it is to bring our faith into alignment with truth, which leads me to the second reminder. Always remember that the primary battle is a battle of faith. It's a battle of faith. Paul says, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. And what is faith? Faith is the hypostasis of things you anticipate and the elegkos of things you don't see. The main fight is the fight that goes on between your ears. It's the fight of faith. Now, my experience has been, and it's probably been your experience, that this isn't the way Christians usually approach problems. Typically what we do is when there's a behavior problem, we treat it like it was simply a behavioral problem. If a John comes into our life and has the guts to say what's really going on, what he might hear typically from, from born-again Christians is, well, stop that. Shame on you. What kind of Christian are you? No, 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 don't do that. And, and we'll use whatever kind of shame motivations we've got to stop the behavior as though the behavior was the main problem. The behavior's not the main problem. No, I'm all for stopping the behavior. Whatever you've got to do to stop the behavior, stop the behavior. Because you're just reinforcing the problem by continuing the behavior. But stopping the behavior is not enough. In fact, in fact, the real battle has been fought and either won or lost before the behavior ever starts. Because the real battle is the battle of what goes on between your ears and the battle of what goes on in your heart. The real battle is the battle of what hypostasis you're paying attention to and how you're doing that hypostasis. And the real battle is about what leg costs, what, 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 what conviction, what motivation is being created in your heart. Because according to your faith be it unto you, what, what you see and therefore what you feel is what you're going to do. So that's where the battle needs to be fought, which is why the New Testament consistently locates the main place of warfare as in the mind. Not in your sheer willpower, not in your behavior, but in what's going on in your mind and therefore what's going on in your heart. 
So for example, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we're to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. If you took every thought captive to Jesus Christ, it'd be impossible for you to sin. Because <laughs> that's where the main thing happens. In fact, that full passage says, starting with verse 3, Paul says, well, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal uh, like the world's are, but our weapons are spiritual to the tearing down of strongholds, the, li the lying movies that go on in our brain. And we come against every pretentious thing and every imagination or every reason, uh, every thought process that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, what you know to be true. And then he says, and in doing that, we take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Uh, you need to run the, the, pay attention to the movies that are running in your brain and see the good is really good and the bad is really bad to change your motivations towards the good and motivation away from the bad. The challenge is always to get our movies to line up with what is true, which is to say, the challenge is to get our movies to line up with God's perspective, which is to say, the challenge is to get our movies to line up with the Word of God, where He gives us God's perspective. So the challenge is to see the deception of the enemy's movies and see the truth of God's movies. It says this about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What is faith? It's the hypostasis in your head and the elegkos in your heart. Hopefully you all have two Greek words you know by heart by now, okay? It's all about what's going on in your head, what's going on in your heart. And Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And the way that we perfect our faith is by keeping our eyes fixed on him. Now, he's our example. Now, here's specifically how he's our example in this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross wasn't the joy. It's what was set before him as a result of the cross that was the joy. And scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, we saw half hour ago that the devil set before Jesus some movies. He set before Jesus some things that you could argue were good. They were tantalizing. They pulled on Jesus. He set before Jesus a vision of all the kingdoms of the world in an instant with all of their splendor and all of their authority, and Jesus could have them. And then he set before Jesus the power to wow all of Israel coming off of the temple and immediately getting their faith. That would pull on Jesus. But apparently there was also another competing faith in Jesus, a competing movie, and it was this one. The joy set before him motivated him, gave him an leg cost to go towards the cross alternative rather than the power of politics alternative or the miracle displayed from the temple alternative. However compelling these other movies were for Jesus, this one, the, the, the movie of the joy that resulted from the cross was bigger and brighter and more attractive. Those other ones had some pull to them, but this one had joy. And see, what Jesus saw was the joy of what would result as, because of his willingness to go to the cross. It was the joy of seeing you in heaven. It was the joy of fellowshipping with you for all eternity. It was the joy of you not being lost. It was the joy of you experiencing forgiveness from God. It was the joy of you being washed clean, whiter than snow. It was the joy of seeing you freed from the devil. It was the joy of seeing the love of God put on display in a breathtaking fashion. And it was the joy of, of love overcoming evil one once and for all, and for all eternity. And Jesus saw that. He savored that. He could taste those like kettle, sultry, garlic, Parmesan chips. And he wanted it, and he craved it. And so he strove towards that. Now, his movie also involved pain. In fact, it involved torture. And if he would have stopped the movie there, well, then he might not have gone in that direction. But he played the movie out to the end, and the end of it was joy, you see. Here's the principle that we need to learn from looking at Jesus. The God movies always have joy to them. 
They may involve immediate pain and suffering, but they all result in joy. The devil will do the opposite. He'll give some immediate gratification, but it always results in pain and suffering. We need to uh, take the movies that are in a God direction, that are the will of God, and bring them in alignment with truth. And that means we bring them in alignment to what is good, to what is beautiful, and make them attractive. And take the ones that are leading us away from truth, and we make those movies, the ugly ones, see them for what they really are. John, John needs to run movies about the catastrophic consequences that his adolescent behavior is having on his marriage. He needs to see ahead of time what's going to result if he keeps this up. And he needs to then run movies, take that sexual energy that he's got and that sexual creativity that he's got. That's not a demonic thing. That's a God thing if you're using it in the right way. And the right way is to run movies about your wife and, and get your mind off that other stuff. And now take that energy and that creativity and that fun and that adventure and, and run movies in the, during the day about your wife, which that hypostasis is going to create some really good leg costs. And, 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 and you're going to be, you know, wanting to do whatever it takes in order to have relationships relationships with your wife. To see that is a good thing. And then see the, the uh, run movies of the joy that will result as, as you uh, grow out of this adolescent obsession and the joy of being a mature man who no longer is given into that and the joy of, 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 of having a marriage that's finally the way that, that you always knew your marriage could be and should be and that God wants it to be. And run movies of the joy of going before the Father uh, when all is said and done. And he says, John, I know that was a tough thing to get over. Uh, but well done, thou good and faithful servant. Yes, there's, there, there is going to be some pain and, and frustration involved in going down this road. There almost always is when you're following God. But the truth is this. Following God is always more fun than following the devil. It really is. Uh, it, it, following God, there's joy in following God. There's peace in following God. What the enemy always does is he takes destructive stuff and he makes it look good. He makes it look attractive. There's an immediate payoff. But you need to run that movie out and see the, the pain and the, the harm and the, the, the suffering that results from that. See it for what it really is. And then take the God movie and run that out and, and see it in all of its goodness and glory. Mary will feel a whole lot better if she says no to buying that sweater. So she needs to run that movie out and, and see how good it felt to say no to that temptation. And now she gets to, for the, for the next year, enjoy the satisfaction of knowing that her sacrifice is allowing a kid to go to school. There's always a joyful, peaceful, life-giving payoff to following God. There's always destructive consequences to going the other way. We just get a, need to get our brains to line up with that truth. It all comes down to what movies are you running in your head? What's your hypostasis, which creates your leg cost, which creates your behavior? We got time to do this. Close your eyes. I just want to very briefly lock this in. Can you right now go to one area of your life? Could be a big area or it could be a very small area like eating chips. Not like world-changing temptation. It could be anything. But go, lock it in right now and enter into your state of mind when you're in that temptation. See yourself being in the store, having to make the decision to buy the sweater or not. Or in the office, having to deal with the temptation of should you continue flirting or not or whatever it is. And Holy Spirit, we're going to ask you to help us right here and right now to do this. Holy Spirit, help us see the movies that we're so quickly running in our head as we're doing this temptation. Help us to see them. In full color, with sound, with full senses, as much as possible, help us to enter into, see what's going on in our head as we're in the middle of a temptation. 
Try to see that, folks. There's the alternatives, some way of representing the alternatives. Okay, and now, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us see the way that we know we shouldn't go. Help us to see its negativity and make that negativity bright. It may simply be a belly that you'd rather not have. <laughs> or it may be the shame of knowing that you broke a promise that you made. Whatever it is, see the negativity. See past the immediate payoff and see the negativity that results, the pain that results. Holy Spirit, help us in this. If you're seeing it right, it should create in you a sense that you want to avoid that. It, it, that hypostasia should create a different leg cost. You want to run the other direction. Maybe it, should, it would create revulsion in you. Somebody here might be thinking about leaving your spouse for this other person that you've been having an affair with. And the devil's showing you the immediate payoff and giving you a happy ever after scenario. Holy Spirit, break that lie. And I want you to see the pain that you're going to be causing your spouse, your kids, relatives, and the shame that you're going to have to wrestle with, and the guilt, because the enemy is going to pounce on you big time. And in all probability, 90% of the cases, it's not going to last. And so see that. You see, see the ugly side of walking away from God. Okay, now, Holy Spirit, help us to now turn to the movie the hypostasis, the faith that God would have us to have in this particular situation. And Holy Spirit, help us to see the joy set before us. And can you see that? Try to see it in full color. See it with motion. See it with, with, maybe hear sound. Whatever it takes. I want you to see the joy. There probably is some immediate pain, inconvenience, frustration. Oh, but see past it. See past it. See the joy. Savor it. Holy Spirit, help us to see it. Yes, Lord, help us to see it. And if you're seeing that appropriately, it should be creating a new kind of leg cost in you, a new motivation. You really do want that. It may in involve crucifi crucifixion, but you want that. Mm, Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord God, that for the particular issue that each one of us is thinking of right now, you help us to see the bad is bad and the good is good. Oh, make the good really bright and attractive. Holy Spirit, help us to see truth, the truth of the joy, the peace that comes when we're willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. And Holy Spirit, help us to see the negative is really negative. The destruction is really destructive. Give us wisdom, Lord, wisdom to not be duped by the enemy who just laughs at us as we destroy ourselves and others and stay immature when you want us to grow up. Mm, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom. And Father, I pray, just generally speaking, even beyond these particular issues, that you teach us how to walk in your ways, to be mindful of the prowling lion, to have the power and the courage and the wisdom to say no to what is destructive and yes 
to what is building and what is life because you are always about life. And Lord, help us not to fall into the delusion that the joy is found in the evil or the fun is found in the evil because the truth is that the joy and the fun is found in righteousness and in walking with you. And help us to have our minds conform to that truth. Help us, Lord, to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we give you the permission. In fact, we ask you to nag us, to stay on us, to remind us, to catch us. When we're going down a road, falling into slumber, keep us awake and vigilant and growing in Christ-likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Praise God. All right. The front of the auditorium is open. Uh, we'll have our prayer teams come forward. And if you'd like to pray about anything, maybe you're in the middle of a temptation or maybe you've already fallen or whatever the issue is, doesn't have to even be about any topic we've talked about, feel free to come forward uh, and, um, and spend some time in prayer. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. Love you.